Good morning. Don't worry, I'm not the speaker today. Um, I'm going to read to you a passage from Psalm 68. Um, Rise up, O God, and scatter your enemies. Let those who hate God run for their lives. Blow them away like smoke, melt them like wax in a fire. Let the wicked perish in the presence of God. But let the godly rejoice. Let them be glad in God's presence. Let them be filled with joy. Sing praises to God and to his name. Sing loud praises to him who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. But he makes rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. O God, when you led your people out from Egypt, when you marched through the dry wasteland, the earth trembled and the heavens poured down rain before you, the God of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You sent abundant rain, O God, to refresh the weary land. There your people finally settled, and with a bountiful harvest, O God, you provided for your needy people. The Lord gives the word and a great army brings the good news. Enemy kings and their armies flee, while the women of Israel divide the plunder. Even those who lived among the sheepfolds found treasures, doves with wings of silver and feathers of gold. The Almighty scattered the enemy kings like a blowing snowstorm on Mount Zalman. The mountains of Bashan are majestic, with many peaks stretching high into the sky. Why do you look with envy, O rugged mountains, at Mount Zion, where God has chosen to live, where the Lord himself will live forever? Surrounded by unnumbered thousands of chariots, the Lord came from Mount Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended to the heights, you led a crowd of captives. You received gifts from the people, even from those who rebelled against you. Now the Lord God will live among us there. Praise the Lord, praise God, our Savior, for each day he carries us in his arms. Our God is the God who saves. The sovereign Lord rescues us from death. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, had the opportunity to go out to Lou's place, a number of people, uh, from mostly from our ESL community, and we had a very interesting time. As we arrived, so Sarah and Caddy and, and Andrew and I arrived in the car. They're in the middle of a scavenger hunt. And so we had all of our, our friends running around and trying to take pictures of trees and birds and, and different things around Lou's farm. And in fact, one of the pictures, Andrew and I were, by the way, we were the judges of this. So we were getting to choose, you know, who got the best pictures and whatnot. And our favorite by far was everybody had to get a picture kissing a cow. So it's Lou with one of his, one of his heifers and someone laying a big wet one. They actually got extra credit for tongue, but it's, (laughs) hey, oh, uh, but at any rate, I, I love going to farms. And anybody, 
who's been to one can agree with me that you go to a farm and there's fresh air and there's the animals and there's this sense of rightness with going to a farm and, and especially if it's a farm that has produce when you get to take a carrot right out of the ground and, and munch on it or a farm fresh tomato it's delicious but most of us don't experience food that way we experience food if you're like me you experience superstore food which i mean at some point i guess came from something like a farm or a farm but not always right and, and so none of us would ever say that there's uh, a direct similarity between superstore and a farm, right? Between farm fresh and Joe fresh. There's a, there's a very big difference with that. Superstore is a collection of food and it comes from the source, which is the farm. And here at Oak Ridge, these last number of weeks, we've been studying the Apostles Creed and the Apostles Creed is a collection of beliefs, but we would never say that it's the source that it's the, the thing that we get our beliefs from. And that, of course, would be the Bible. The Bible is where we get our beliefs from. But when we look at the creed, though, they're very, very important, or, or creeds. There's a number of them, but the Apostles' Creed in particular is very important because this is a collection of beliefs that have been used for centuries in order to help be a, a guard against heresy against wrong beliefs, against beliefs that could lead people astray. So when people in the ancient world would get baptized, for instance, they would repeat the Apostles' Creed to help people understand that they shared the same beliefs. But part of the problem with using the Apostle Creed is that it uses language because it is ancient and it was written in a context where sometimes the language can be a little bit confusing. I know, I know many of us have, when we've read it through, wondered about the, the Catholic thing. And just to reiterate, when we, when we say Catholic in the creed, you'll notice it has a small c. And small, when you see small c Catholic, you can just switch the word out, Catholic, and put in the word universal. So when we say that it's the Catholic Church, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we believe in the Holy Universal Church. The church that, it's not universalism, it's the church that everybody affirms belief in Jesus Christ and then the tenets of the creed. That's all it means by Catholic. Large C Catholic is Roman Catholic. Small C, Universal Church. But before, even before you get to the Holy Catholic part, there's another part in there that can sometimes raise some eyebrows, and that's the, the words, Jesus descended to hell. And I know if you're like me, you read Jesus descended to hell and you go, man, if Jesus descended to hell, what kind of chance do I have to not go there, right? It's, if, if that guy can't make it. But if so, if you're sitting there and thinking, I don't think that Jesus could possibly go to hell, well, gold star, you'd be right. Jesus couldn't go to hell. And in fact, Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that Jesus went to hell. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, what about that spot? No, it doesn't teach it there. Well, hey, what about this verse over here in First Peter? No, it doesn't teach it there either. And for those of you that are hoping that I'm going to get into that this morning, that I'm going to go through all of the texts where it could be potentially uh, read that Jesus went to hell, you're going to be very disappointed. Because I'm not going to be getting into that. I'm going to be getting into how we can look at it in a positive sense instead of sitting there and going into how what it doesn't mean. If you're interested in talking about that, though, I'll be around uh, for a lot of today so we can sit and have that conversation after the meeting, <laughs> the, the general meeting.
So what does it mean then? And I am super glad you asked that question because that is, in fact, what we're going to be talking about this morning. But we're going to get there in a few minutes. It's going to take a second to get there. But I can tell you right now, it's going to have to do with Jesus' generous, sacrificial love for us. Don't you just love stories about people doing sacrificial, loving things or when things happen when they do for others, I, I know, and it's even more incredible, I think, when it happens to us. I remember when I was in high school, for those of you who know my story, I, I went off the rails, uh, as, so to speak, at, a, at an early age. I went, I went bad uh, when I was about grade 8. So by the time I hit grade 10, I was already, I, I, at this point, I was homeless and crowds or couch surfing. And one of my teachers, my grade 10 math teacher, in fact, knew a bit of my story. And so he motioned me to him after class one day, and he said, Chris, I know you're going through a bit of a tough time right now. Why don't you come and stay with me? Now, I I know, thinking about this, this was 20 years ago, to think about a high school teacher inviting one of their students to come live with them is shocking in a sense, because that's a recipe for, you know, arrest and being all over Yahoo News with the, the idea that this person's whatever, but he... For me, it was an incredibly touching moment because I had, there, I had a number of teachers and I had a guidance counselor in particular that saw something in me and they wanted to see me get better. They wanted to see the potential that they saw actually be realized. And so he wanted to do whatever he could and I, and I thanked him. But at the same time, I, I stopped and looked, why would you do that? Why would you risk your career? Why would you do something so, from my, where I was standing, crazy in order to, to try to help me. Isn't that a question we often ask, though, when we see people doing amazing things? And in fact, I think two things come to mind. First, we get that question, why would you do that? Why would you do that for somebody? Think of a, a baseball coach down in the United States when one of his players was diagnosed with a, with a kidney problem and he needed to get a transplant. And this coach, who'd only known this player for just a number of months, went through the grueling. He'd heard that the family couldn't do anything about it, so he went through the grueling five-week system of finding out whether or not he could be a match, and after going through that, realized that he could. And so he did. He donated one of his kidneys to his player, and his player now, I was reading the other day, has been thriving because of that. And so we step back, and I know as I read that, I'm like, why would you do that? And so that's the first thing we think. The second thing we think is, Man, I, I want to be like that person. Don't we? We, we think that, uh, man, I wish I could be that sacrificial to do something that big. But then with that, I know for myself, it's like, well, but I, I don't think I could ever do something that amazing. I mean, this person must have tapped in something deep into the universe or, or have a relationship with God or, or something to be able to get them to do something so fantastic. I couldn't possibly do something like that. Could I? It's a question that we're also going to get back to in a little bit. Because we want to move on and we want to acknowledge that these willing acts are great when people do them. But what about some of the ones that could have been avoided? What about times when we see suffering or we see things going on when the person that it happens to seems innocent? Those are the times we want to shake our fist at God, don't we? Why is this happening? We go from this place of, why would you do that? This awe that we have for a person who's doing something so amazing to, how dare you 
to God, how could you let this happen? How could you let something so terrible happen to this person? And this is part of the problem of evil. The problem of evil says that how could a good God, or ask the question, how could a good God allow something so terrible to happen to somebody so innocent? And the answer to that is, is actually, in a, in a way, simple, but it, it's very difficult for, to, for us to accept, is that as human beings, we can't possibly know what reasons a good, all-knowing, all-powerful, loving God would have for allowing bad things to happen to people. We just don't know. We just have to trust. There's a gentleman by the name of Reek Sahim. He's he was in Cambodia, and he grew up during the killing fields. Some of you may remember that time in Cambodia. And, and he writes, After years of surviving the killing fields, I, along with my father and brothers, were dragged to the edge of a mass grave. We were slashed with machetes and clubbed with hose. Minutes later, I woke in the grave in a pile of my dead and dying relatives. I was able to climb out and hide in nearby weeds when the killers left to round up my female relatives and complete their macabre mission. When they returned, they murdered my mother and sister. As the soldiers threw dirt on the people who were my entire life, I swore revenge. I was alone, was hungry, and scared. In the coming weeks, I made my way across the jungle avoiding soldiers by day and sleeping in trees by night to escape the roaming tigers. I eventually found my way to the safety of a succession of refugee camps, all the while planning and plotting the deaths of the men who murdered my loved ones. Where is God in that, we ask? Today I want to use Jesus as an experience. I want to use his experience as an extreme example of what may be going on when something terrible happens in our lives. Because let's be honest, if you were Mary, or if you were one of Jesus' family, other family members, or if you were one of his disciples, his friends, it would be pretty confusing. It would be pretty tough to understand exactly why Jesus had to do what he did when he went to the cross. So our main point this morning, something that it seems rather simplistic, but it's fantastically profound, is that Jesus experienced hell so we could go to heaven. Jesus experienced hell so we could go to heaven. And we're going to explore this truth this morning. And and in order to make sense of the creed's wording, why we would still keep that word hell in there, as well as to be able to apply it to our own circumstances, what we can learn. And there's going to be three things. We're going to go in order there. Uh, Jesus, he experienced hell on the cross, is the first one. Jesus went to paradise. And then Jesus set people free. So Jesus experienced hell on the cross. This is where Jesus and hell intersect. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46 read, Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthini. That is, my God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why don't I feel your presence? When Sarah and I first arrived here, some of you may remember the story. She was pregnant uh, with Caddy, and we were out at the lake up, up north, and Sarah ended up having a massive hemorrhage. And so we, we, she was 27 weeks. I was freaked out. I didn't know what was going on. I thought Caddy had died. I thought she was dying. Rushed her out uh, to get to the, the road. The ambulance came. We met the ambulance. The ambulance rushed Sarah off to the hospital. And I had to follow behind. And then we get to the hospital, and, and this uh, wonderful doctor there, this caring man, took one look at Sarah and said, I can't do anything for her. This baby is coming, and he's early, and she needs to be in a better, she needs to be in a top, top-level hospital. And so we said, okay, well, how's she getting there? And he says, okay, I'm calling, I'm going to call a helicopter. So the helicopter came, and with Sarah and, with Sarah and Caddy away, and I ended up having to drive back. So for her, it was about a 25-minute helicopter ride. For me, the trip took about six hours. By the time I, I went back to the cabin and then drove to, to Mount Sinai. And during that time, I'm going to be just transparent. It was a, it was a rough time. I, I before I had left, I had a, no less than three guys grab me by the shoulders and look me straight in the eye and say, "Don't be an idiot. Don't drive and get yourself killed. Be safe." But I was angry. I was afraid. I was sad. I was going through all of these emotions, and I felt separated from God. But his grace is, is pretty amazing. And because Jesus has died, God's presence is always with us. And God gave me grace through, of all people, a musician that I had been listening to for a while named Josh Garrels. I was listening to him on the CD player. And he has a song called Children of God. And these are the lyrics. Children of the earth, once dust but now alive are living in tents of flesh and bone. We hold a spiritual fire, set a flame in my heart, illuminate the darkest hours, where I wait before the dawn to see the glory and the power of the Lord. Hallelujah. The older we become, we must become more like a child, believing there's a land that lies beyond all the things that we've seen. Make my mind free from fears. You know I can't do it on my own. The way is high, but we can fly over when you heal our wings. Hallelujah. And as the tears were streaming down my face, I sang that song, and it helped me remember who my God was and that he was in control, but it was tough. So how is this experience that Jesus is going through then? How is that hell? How could we say that that could be hell? Well, listen to me now. Hell is the absence of relationship or a presence of God to bless or to be in right relationship. But instead, it's the presence of God merely to judge. When we read that verse 45 and we read that darkness fell over the land for three hours, that wasn't just an eclipse. That wasn't just a mere act of nature. That was 
the physical manifestation of the judgment of God falling on his son as he was attached to that cross. And he was experiencing, I mean, individuals experience the judgment for their own sin. Jesus experienced the sin of everybody. So forget both barrels of judgment. Jesus got all barrels of judgment. He got everything. And because this was happening, God the Father had to turn his back momentarily due to the cursedness of Jesus' state. Jesus bore our sins. First Peter 2, 24 reads, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body, might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And in Paul in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the perfected man became the cursed man. This is the hell that Jesus experienced. In the crucifixion scene, Jesus was an innocent man. And we see him in the center flanked by two criminals who, by their own admission, they weren't innocent. And the thief's cry for mercy, the one that we're going to read about in just a moment, this wasn't him rededicating his life. This was instead, I mean, there's no time for that. This was a man who was had realized, come to the point of realization that the person that he was being crucified next to was the Son of God, that he wasn't a mistaker in need of correction. He was a sinner in need of a Savior. So by Jesus staying on the cross, ignoring the other man, telling him to get off the cross to save himself and to save them, he stayed on that cross and he experienced hell, and he opened the doors to paradise. Jesus went to paradise. So a quick lesson on the concept of the afterlife. First, the afterlife is real. Sounds probably overly simplistic to say, but this is something that we need to to mention, that the afterlife is something real. And if, if it's not, This is another area where I may not go deep enough for you today, but there's just no time. If you want to talk about this after, we can, but I'm going to stick with this saying statement. I'm going to give you one reason. If there is no afterlife, life itself is pointless. If there is no afterlife, life itself is is ultimately pointless, and, and I'm going to give you one reason. Now, one reason is that if there's no afterlife, there is no justice, there's no real justice. I mean, I could, you know, light something on fire and, and go and have to pay a fine and, and, you know, maybe get a day in jail for arson or something like that. Maybe we could have a little bit of justice like that. But ultimate justice, we can think of a number of situations that have happened in the history of the world where we're like, man, that person got off pretty scot-free. We think of different people. We think of Hitler. We think of Mao. We think of Castro. I mean, what, suicide and two natural deaths? Like, that's not, how's that fair? How's that justice? Of all the atrocities that those guys... I mean, if you want to take your your who's who of world atrocities, I mean, that's your Rushmore, right? And these guys, they just got away with it. If there's no afterlife. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 reads, For we must all, 
And so when he says we in the Greek, it means we. And when he says all in the Greek, it means all. So this is, this is everybody. Must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body. So whatever you've done on earth, whether good or evil, there will be a reckoning. But for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, we know that that's how we will be judged, is by his perfect life. So that's the first one. Afterlife is real. Second, in some mysterious way, it is compartmentalized. There's lots of mystery that goes on when it comes to the idea of heaven and hell, and we got to be okay with that. When you read in Luke 16, there's this interesting story about two men. There's the rich man and there is Lazarus. Now, the rich man, is he's a rich guy. and He doesn't, as the story goes, really care about anybody else but his own life. And then there's Lazarus, and the story tells us that he was poor. He would survive off the scraps of the table of the rich people, and dogs would even come and, and lick at his sores. So he had it pretty rough. Now, they both die and and uh, it's the story says that angels come and they take Lazarus and they fly him away to Abraham's bosom this is the only time that Abraham's bosom is used in the new testament and this is synonymous with the idea of paradise or the afterlife but in, but as far as the rich man goes he's taken away to another place so in the old testament the afterlife was known as the the place of the dead or, or the proper name was sheol so that's the hebrew for the greek we have Hades. So there, it's, it's the same place. There's, we could probably get into more distinctions, but we're going to avoid Bible college this morning and, and, and go for a little more simplicity. So we have Hades, and Hades was, as we can see, there is at least two compartments there. There is a place for those who had been righteous and those who had been unrighteous. But because Jesus had not yet died, there was no Forgiveness of sins in totality, so there wasn't instant access to the presence of God. Though the place that the, the poor man, or sorry, that Lazarus went was a lot better than the rich man. So we have these compartmentalization. So then when we read in Luke 23 verses 42 and 43, and he said, and this is where we get our thieves, our criminals, the repentant one says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you go where you're going to go, because that's where I want to go. I believe in you. And, and he, Jesus, said to him, truly, whenever Jesus says truly, that means we got to listen up, right? we got to listen up. Truly, I say to you today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, this is that same place, but what Jesus is doing, what he's talking about, is that by him experiencing that hell on the cross, he was then going to paradise as an innocent man, as God crucified, and he was going to split Hades wide open and allow people to be set free, to be able to experience the presence in the afterlife of God. So Jesus set people free. Now, I think a lot of people, when we think of the idea of the afterlife, or even Jesus' participation with it, it goes a lot like this. This is our, uh, this is Gandhi. And Gandhi said, I would accept Jesus as a martyr, as an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher. 
but not as the most perfect man ever born. In fact, his death on the cross was a great example to the world. But that there was nothing like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, that there was. My heart just couldn't accept that. And we hear this all the time. This is where C.S. Lewis gets his argument about why people say that Jesus can't possibly just be a liar or a good man and a teacher because he would have to be either a liar or a lunatic. But as believers and as, as we affirm things like the creed and, and hold the Bible in its proper place, we would call him not a liar or a lunatic, but we would call him Lord. Ephesians 4 verse 8, Paul does something pretty interesting here. He takes the very words that we heard Laura read this morning and he gives a bit of his own take on them. In verse, I have verse 8 up here, but we're going to just go back a little bit. To verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What was Christ's gift? His sacrifice. His experiencing hell on the cross. And therefore it says, and this is where Paul quotes, in a way, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to his people. So the picture of Psalm 68 that we read this morning was a picture of a victorious leader coming back after an incredible victory. Coming in and leading not only their, their prisoners of war, these captives that they've taken, but also a victorious leader that has freed the people that were stuck, that were being held in the place that they were able to go. They went, it was a rescue mission. And this leader is bringing their people home. Bringing their people home. So Paul is pointing out two things here that we need to be 100% clear about. Jesus on the cross defeated the powers of evil. He defeated Satan and his demons. And the second thing he did is he set free those who were waiting to be able to enter into the final rest of their Lord. When we read in Genesis 3, this was foretold then, when God confronts the serpent and he says, my son is going to kill you. He's going to crush your head. You may bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. The writer of Hebrews in the second half of verse 14 in chapter 2 writes that through death he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And if we go into Psalm 16, we won't read that, but we see that the promise of God is not to leave his faithful in Sheol, in the place of the dead. He is going to take them home. So through Jesus sacrificing himself, 
experiencing hell and going to paradise, he was able to set captives free. Now, back to the question that we asked ourselves at the beginning. Can I, can you be this sacrificial? And the answer to that question is obviously not. When it comes to Jesus, none of us can be that sacrificial. It's, it's why we need why we need Jesus. But here's a better question for us. What hell have you experienced? What have you gone through in your life? Because Jesus died because we could, so we could go to heaven, we can take our tough experiences, whether we've gone through a divorce, lost a loved one, been abused, lost a child. There's any number of things that we've gone through that we could all legitimately describe being in that moment a hellish experience. We can take these experiences and we can share them with others who are going through the same thing. We can use that to bless others who are struggling. Our lives need to be reflective of the grace that we've been given as God shows himself loyal to be with us during these hard times. We can then do that for other people. God promised freedom for us, not so that we could just have whatever happened to us for no reason and it ha- just be this pointless, stupid situation, this experience that just is meaningless. Instead, he says, I'm going to take these things, these tough horrific moments in your life and we're going to use them for good. Second Corinthians in chapter 1 Paul says, Blessed be the God of our Father of Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort of which we ourselves are comforted by God. And it's a bit of a a tongue twister that Paul threw down on us there. But in other words, it's using the thing that you had to go through and God comforted you through is the very thing that you can use to comfort another person. Our experience is to help others, not to hoard it for ourselves, because Jesus' experience was effective. It did something. And so can ours. Nothing is irredeemable. And some of us might be sitting here today thinking, well, you don't know what I've done. Right? You don't know what I think. You don't know who I am. And all I can say to you is, God's got plenty of grace for what you think, or what you've done, or who you think you are. And I promise you this, if you give yourself to Him, though life may not be easier, it will certainly become more meaningful. And we ask why, and we say the reason for that is because this Jesus thing, this church thing, is so much bigger than us as individuals. It's about community with God and with other people. Our friend Rixa, Brother Rixa, that we talked to at the beginning, or talked about at the beginning, he writes more about him fleeing. He he writes, I fled to Thailand and spent five horrific years in refugee camps, including Kauai Dang, before immigrating to Canada. There, I would come to an even greater moment of truth when I eventually came to know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. 
Through years of Bible study and communion with God, I started a new life in the West, but could not release myself from the prison of hatred, anger, and vengeance. I discovered that forgiveness truly is divine, and as the years passed by, my blood oath and all-consuming ire were in direct conflict with my new nature. In time, I discovered that forgiveness opens a channel for real spiritual power to work in my life, a power which brings healing and wholeness. In the years that followed, I began a new mission, one that still included finding the men responsible for the deaths of my loved ones, but with or for a new purpose. I no longer wanted to seek their deaths, but to tell them of the life and the hope that I had found. I eventually found two of the men involved in my family's deaths in the very village and among the very people they terrorized over two decades before. Initially, on hearing that I wanted to meet the men to forgive them, many people thought that my plan was just another attempt to locate the men so that I could take my revenge. But to the surprise of the men and and most of the villagers, I shook hands with the two men and, and I forgave them. Since then, literally thousands of lives have been impacted by Brother Reeks as he travels around and shares his story and and does leadership training and tells of the the great love and forgiveness that he received through Jesus. Death and suffering are not the end of the story. They're merely a part of it now before all things are made right. Jesus himself told Peter before he left that the very gates of hell would not triumph over his kingdom, or over the church that he was building on them. And this is true because he would defeat death, because he would take our predicament and sacrifice himself because he loves us, because God loves us and wants to have a deep and personal relationship with us. This was the effect of Jesus' descent into hell. This is how we understand that. Jesus experienced hell so that we could go to heaven. Let's pray.